Well, I love listening to podcasts. I love listening to audiobooks when I'm driving down the road. I don't know if many of you like to do that, but that's one of my favorite things to do. It started a number of years ago, uh, 12 years ago, in fact, when I was driving back and forth in the state of South Carolina, driving back and forth from Greenville, South Carolina, to Charleston, South Carolina. It's about a 200-mile distance, and our son was there in the hospital. And so multiple times a week, I was making that trip uh, back and forth. But I didn't have an iPhone back then, and I didn't have a smartphone back then. My car was not Bluetooth compatible back then, but what I did have... Uh, was Cracker Barrel, of all things. So if I haven't introduced myself to you yet, if you're a guest with this morning, if you're watching us online, uh, I want to invite you in. My name is Pastor Milo. We are so glad that you're here uh, with us. You picked a great week to join us, and I think you're really going to enjoy where this sermon is going to go this morning. So let me explain what I mean by Cracker Barrel. So in those days, uh, when you'd go up and down the interstate, there are multiple Cracker Barrels along the interstate. And in the gift shop there along uh, in Cracker Barrel, you could go in and you could buy an audio book there in their gift shop. And then as you're driving down the interstate, you could actually return said audio book at another Cracker Barrel. Now they figured out that people were doing it illegally for long enough that they were getting their full money back for this, that they actually started giving you a percentage of your money back at the next Cracker Barrel, depending on how many days uh, ago that you had purchased it. So I made my way through. Uh, Audiobooks would come in in packs of a CD of six or eight or ten CDs. You had to make sure that you got all the CDs back in the pack before you took it back so they would get uh, returned. And so that year, I listened to the audiobook, uh, the, the autobiography of Buzz Aldrin. He's the other guy, if you didn't know that. He's the other guy who was there when Neil Armstrong uh, walked on the moon. I listened to the biography of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR. Very interesting story. And I also learned to this, uh, listened to this audiobook called The Land of Lincoln. It's a story about how Abraham Lincoln still has influence on us today and in our country today, 150 years after his death. Well, most of you are returning from time with friends and family. In your time, if it was anything like ours, it was built around a parade, uh, it was built around a dog show, it was built around a turkey, and it was built around a really good football game. I don't know if the rest of you had the same kind of Thanksgiving formula that we had, but that's what it was. But we are very grateful that we had that time to come together to reflect, to be able to talk about how God had done different things uh, this year, and you were each given an opportunity for that. You may not realize that it was Abraham Lincoln who inaugurated Thanksgiving Day as a federal holiday. This is what he said back, I'm going to read this, from October of 1863. The year that is drawing towards its close has been filled with the blessings of fruitful fields and helpful skies. To these bounties which are so constantly enjoyed that we are prone to forget the source from which they have come. Which are so extraordinary in nature that they cannot fail to penetrate and even soften every heart which is habitually insensible to the ever watchful providence of our almighty God. They are the gracious gifts of the most high God who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, has nevertheless remembered mercy. It has seemed to me fit and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as one with heart and with one voice by the whole American people. 
I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. And I recommend to them that while offering up the inscriptions justly due to him, our Heavenly Father, for such singular deliverances and blessings, that they'd also do so with humble penitence for our national perverseness and our disobedience. Commend to his tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife in which we are unavoidably engaged. And fervently employ the interposition of the almighty hand to heal the wounds of our nation and to restore as soon as may be consistent with the divine purposes to the full enjoyment of peace, harmony, tranquility, and union. Abraham Lincoln, October of 1863. October of 1863, in the middle of the Civil War, is when Thanksgiving Day was instated as a federal holiday, that we would give thanks to Almighty God for the blessings that he has given us in the middle of civil war. In the preface of that audiobook, The Land of Lincoln, the one I was talking about earlier, Andrew Ferguson starts the book this way. It says, more books have been written about Abraham Lincoln than about any other American, nearly 14,000 in all. And at least half of those books begin by saying that more books have been written about Abraham Lincoln than about any other American. You'll notice that this book is one of them. Yet its subject matter is not Lincoln directly or Lincoln exclusively. Its subject is really the country that Lincoln created around, which I think I can show. He still putters around. He still appears here and there in unlikely and in likely places, stirring things up, offering consolation suspending bromides and bits of wisdom and otherwise making himself undeniable. The Ford Center for Education in Washington, D.C., there's a, mountain, a monument for Lincoln, a different monument for Lincoln than the one that you're familiar with, but it's inside of this education space where there's a Lincoln log book tower in the middle of this education space, right where there's a spiral staircase that goes up. And they've taken more than 7,000 books to create a tower that is 34 feet tall. That's three and a half stories tall that you can circle around and around and around and see all of these different books that have been written about Abraham Lincoln. There's a whole lot that has been written about him. And while I do think the life of Abraham Lincoln is very interesting, I do believe that he was a very wild person in many ways. The adventures of, of, of Abraham Lincoln are, are important for us to know. But I want to talk to you today about someone who is undeniably more influential, more important, and even more recognizable than old honest Abe. I want to talk to you about none other than Jesus of Nazareth. So today we're going to begin a sermon series, a sermon series that we are calling the Christmas Creed. It's a sermon series that is going to take us through the familiar passages of the nativity story, but it's going to look at them from a different point of view, a not-so-familiar lens. This year we're going to take a look at these Christmas texts and we're going to ask questions about the Christmas text. Questions that say, what do these passages teach us about the nature of God? What do these passages, what do these Christmas texts reveal to us about Jesus and the work of the enemy against him? What do these passages teach us about the purpose of the church? 
So if you have your Bible with you this morning, turn to one of those familiar passages, Luke chapter 1. And as you're getting your Bible out, yes, we ask you to bring your Bible every week. We ask you to bring something to write with every week and bring something to write on. Because if we are opening God's Word, we should expect that it would have something to say to us. And if it's going to say something to us, we ought to be ready to write it down. And so over the next seven sermons, what we will be doing is we're going to be reinforcing our own positional and foundational non-negotiables that we want to be able to talk about, our own statement of faith. What are the essentials of our faith? Why is the Christmas season so important for followers of Jesus? And today we ask the first of those questions. Why the Bible? Why the Bible? Why is it so important? Why is this our sacred text? Well, just like Andrew Ferguson was just one more author writing one more book about the legend of Abraham Lincoln, we have uh, in the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, we have one more author writing one more book, one more account of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Listen to how he begins the first chapter. It even has a similar sound to it of what I just read to you a few minutes ago. Here it is, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Here it comes. Many of us have undertaken to drop an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first, and they were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Doesn't it sound similar to the way that preface of the book about Lincoln began? It's, it's very similar to that, but we don't want to believe that this is just any other book, a book about Jesus. No, we actually believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And so the first point I want to make for us this morning is that the Bible is alive. The Bible is alive. In 2 Timothy 3.16, we read that Scripture is inspired by God. This word literally means that it is God-breathed. Here it is on the screen. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness. Scriptures is a special word for the writings that we have in the Bible. We could call our Bibles a, a handheld library, if you will, because there are many books. There are 66 books in all in our Bible. But Scriptures is a special word for what we say is the Old Testament Scriptures, so the Scriptures that were written before Jesus walked the earth, and then the New Testament Scriptures, that after Jesus was born, you get the New Testament, and all that happened after Jesus was born. The Bible is alive. All of Scripture is God-breathed. Simply put, I want you to think about how a musician, if you're a person who's ever played a wind instrument, how a, a musician blows air through that instrument. God actually blows air through his 
instrument to create a specific sound as well. His, his instrument is actually humankind, all of humanity, and he uses different people uh, to produce certain and perfect words so that they would write them down. He is breathing through them. Every word that we have in Scripture in this Bible is fully inspired and is exactly what God intended for it to be. Imagine for a second of how far that God actually has to dumb things down so that you and I can understand his word at all. He knows everything. He flung the stars into space. He, he put our earth into orbit. He made the smallest things that we can possibly find and the largest things we've ever come across. God did all of that and he's actually dumbing it down enough so that we can find out who he is. That we can understand him. You see, when we have the Bible, we have the word of God, we begin to know its author. And although we can know him truly, we will not ever know him fully. Even though we can know him truly, we will not ever know him fully, at least not here on this earth. And even when we do get to come into heaven and into his glory and we're able to see the full picture, the full scope of the glory of God, of what he has been up to, when we're able to see the full scale of his glory, we will still be the created ones and he will still be the creator of all things. And he, God, has given us his holy word. God himself is the author of the Bible. By his spirit, he has guided his spokesmen to speak his word in their language. Isn't that a mystery? That God, that God would allow us through his Holy Spirit, that he would speak his word into his messengers, but he's allowing it in their language. But because the Bible is written by God. It reveals the principles by which God would have us to live, the principles by which God is going to judge this earth, the principles, therefore, that all mankind must live to. The Bible is the standard. The Bible is alive. The stories, they are true. The Bible is alive. The stories, they are true. This Christmas passage of scripture that we stood and read together just a few moments ago, it comes from the gospel of Luke. So Luke's gospel is an investigation of the man who was God. It's the first of two books in our Bibles that we have that are written by Luke. This chapter one is one of the longest chapters in the New Testament. It's the introduction to Jesus coming onto the stage. This book of Luke is the prequel and the book of Acts is the sequel. And he writes both of these books and he writes them in orderly account. He says to the most excellent Theophilus, a high-ranking Gentile official to whom Luke wants to share the life of Christ and the early life of his church. Now Luke is believed to be a physician or to be a lawyer or perhaps both. And so because of this, it's no surprise that Luke's gospel narrative has the most detail of any of the gospels, particularly about the miraculous birth of two very special babies. 
It's almost as if he wants his readers to see what he is writing and be keenly aware of the supernatural nature of what is going on. He wants us to see and to understand it's almost as if he is saying, you can trust me, I'm a doctor, this is not normal. And a lot of time has passed since Luke wrote these words. But I do want to be clear. Do believe that every word in this story, that this story did happen. These stories are true. And Luke himself seems to acknowledge that what I'm writing down right now is pretty outlandish. So I'm going to give you a lot of detail to make you understand and make you know, I understand that this sounds weird, but I want to tell you that this is what happened. Zechariah is a priest, and he's married to his wife Elizabeth. They are both descendants of Aaron, which is uh, the priestly tribe of Levi. And for both of them to be of the tribe would be particularly special as well. Luke writes about how uh, Zechariah's home is in the hill country, it says. That's the hill country. That's, that's pretty far out there. There's not even a name for the place that he's at. He's just way out there in the hills. He is in hill country. He is serving the Lord faithfully without accolades or attaboys. And suddenly an angel appears to Zechariah, which is a miracle in and of itself, to tell him that he and Elizabeth in their old age would finally be able to have their own child. Luke chapter 1 beginning in verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. The Bible is alive. The stories, they are true. Now, Zechariah, when he hears this, he responds in the way that you or I would probably respond if we had heard this. He, he promptly sticks his foot in his mouth. He says, how can this be? This is his initial response. He responds with doubt and disbelief, even though what he was currently seeing right in front of him, what he is currently experiencing right in front of him is clearly a miraculous encounter, but his response still is, how could this happen? How is this possible? So as you know, God puts him in a nine-month timeout. He says, maybe next time you speak, Zechariah, maybe your voice will be filled with gratitude and praise. Maybe next time that you speak, Zechariah, your, your, your words will reflect the very heart of God. And you know what? Next time he spoke, that is exactly what he did. But let's not forget what's going on in the context of Zechariah here and his response and Elizabeth and this incredible announcement. Zechariah and Elizabeth are living in that gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in that gap is absolute and total and complete silence. For 400 years, there has been total silence from God. We don't know how to fathom that. 
to be honest. We can't think in that, in that realm, in that way. Like I, that context doesn't make sense to us because we've always had all of the Old Testament, all the New Testament here at our fingertips. 400 years, that's a really long time. Elvis Presley, he died about 40 years ago. Albert Einstein was born 140 years ago. Ago. The Declaration of Independence was signed. John Hancock signs that 240 years ago. 350 years ago, the Dutch colony of New Amsterdam was taken over and surrendered to an English naval squadron, uh, and, and it, it was uh, renamed New York in honor of the Duke of York. That was 350 years ago. 400 years ago. That's how long ago that the first slave ships arrived here in Virginia from Africa. 400 years ago, slavery began in that fledgling Virginia colonies. 400 years ago is a long, long time. It's a very long time for Elizabeth and Zachariah to remember the way that it used to be. The way that it used to be, so that Zechariah would be a little bit uncertain about what he was seeing and what he was hearing. A little uncertain about this move, this miraculous move of God. A little uncertain about the angel that is standing there next to the altar and speaking to him once again because it has been so terribly long since angels had spoken, since this God had spoken to his prophets in years gone by. But here's one thing that Zechariah needed to be reminded of. The Bible is alive. The stories, they are true. And here's how it played itself out. Verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared in her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up, and he said, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. Remember that lineage that went all the way back to the tribe of Levi, to Aaron. But they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. And immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue was set free, and he began to speak, praising God. Jumped on to 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Check this out. Just as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. He just woke up. He just realized the stories are all true. Just like the prophet said. Zechariah is overjoyed. The scriptures, they are true. The prophecies of old, the legends of the patriarchs, it's all true. And now he holds in his arms this little baby, the one that he is calling John. And this boy who is named John, he would be the forerunner of the Messiah, the Savior of 
the world. And all the friends that came around, all the family that came around, they were all mesmerized. They were all enthusiastically filled with awe through the hill country and through all of Judea. They were continuously talking about these things. Why? Because 400 years ago, something was written that they are finding out again was absolutely true. God's word, the Bible, is alive. The stories, they are true. Archaeological investigations have been used and they've been digging, they've been trying to refute all the skepticism concerning the historical accuracy of the Bible. For instance, for a long time it was alleged that the Hittites that are mentioned over 50 times in the Old Testament, that the Hittites were made up by biblical authors uh, in order to connect the stories of the Old Testament. And, And the ideas that were being put there were entirely fabricated out of thin air, but... Excavations of several Hittite cities and the recovery of many of their written records demolished every one of those critics' arguments. It used to be assumed that Sodom and Gomorrah were the inventions of biblical writers. But then archaeologists, what did they do? They found the ruins of the ancient cities that were there to the southeast of the Dead Sea in modern-day Jordan. There have been numerous discoveries. And all of them point again and again to the accuracy of of Scripture. And so it's important for us to note the accuracy of Scripture, but archaeology alone is not going to be able to prove that the Bible is true. It won't. It merely serves as a witness to the truth that already resides there. History helps to speak loudly to the trustworthy nature of Scripture, but ultimately when it comes to the Bible, here's what we need to know. When it comes to God's Word, truth is timeless. God's Word is true. God's Word will never change. God's Word will never change. The God of the Bible never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That is, the only, that is why he's the only secure place that man can put his faith, that woman can put, that children can put their faith and trust in. The fact that God is eternally unchanging allows us to grab a hold of something longer than the next five minutes or five days or 50 years. We can grab a hold of it more than any other being in existence. Psalm thirty-three, eleven puts it this way. The plans of the Lord stand forever. The plans of His heart are to all generations The plans that were in motion when Albert Einstein was alive are still in motion today. The plans that were in motion when Abraham Lincoln was alive are still in motion today. The plans, you get where I'm going with that. They are still in motion today. The plans of his heart are to all generations. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 24. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words by no means will ever pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away.
We should find extreme comfort in God's unchanging nature. Every created thing in this life is going to let you down at some point, at some time. I will certainly let you down at some point, at some time. Other religious leaders are going to let you down at some point, at some time. But God's word will never change. Whether it's circumstances, relationships, health, career, children, technology, however unstable the world may become or the circumstances around us may look, God never changes. God's word will never change. Notice I didn't say God's font will never change. Or God's translation may never change. I know this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but it's a rabbit trail that I want to go down today. And I want to explain why. Because I grew up in a church I grew up with a pastor who I believe now, and looking back, abused this principle of God's word never changing. And it was a very difficult thing for me to get my mind around as a young man, to be able to understand what, it, what that meant. So I don't mean that God's font never changes. I was a kid who was at the church all the time. I was not a pastor's kid. I was a deacon's kid who was best friends with the pastor's kid. So we were there at the church seemingly all the time, as many nights as we possibly could. And you probably, many of you grew up this way as well. You were at church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, and any other night that you could possibly uh, add in there as well. I believe at this time, uh, the example that I'm giving, uh, I was there with the pastor's son. We were running around the church. I think it was on a Saturday, and I think his dad was probably prepping his sermon uh, for the next day. And, and, and somehow, and how this all kind of was coming together, as, as kids do, we were exploring the church, we were climbing into attic spaces, we were opening closets that we had never seen before, and we opened up a VBS cabinet in the children's area. And in that VBS cabinet, we found a stack of New Testament, most likely Gideon, actually I do know, they were Gideon Bibles, New Testament Bibles. Are you familiar with what I'm talking about? You've seen them before. But the problem was, in discovering this box of Bibles, we discovered that they were the quote-unquote wrong translation. And so this box of Bibles were the wrong translation, meaning they were a different translation that was being used in the pulpit every Sunday, every week there at the church. And so we, myself, the pastor's son, we took the box of Bibles and we took them out to the dumpster at the church and tore them into a thousand pieces. Why? Because as far as we understood it, the words, the words of that particular translation were the accurate words of God. And the words of any other translation, of any other font would be blasphemy because it was written in modern English. It must be destroyed because the word of God never changes. See, friends, when I say the word of God never changes, I'm talking about the word of God that is divinely inspired. So the rest of that story is I came home, I told my parents what I had done. I was proud of what I had done. I wasn't going to get in trouble for this. I had destroyed the text that we needed to get rid of. 
My dad was mortified. He said, what are we doing that my son thinks that I'm, he's doing God's work by tearing up Bibles? And so he went back over to the church that afternoon, climbed in the dumpster, and put together as many Bibles as he possibly could. And for years, I believe they're still there somewhere in the house, we had stacks of duct-taped Bibles in the closet at my house. So if you ever need a New Testament, I know where to find one. When I say that the Word of God is divinely inspired, I want to say with the utmost clarity, as well as I can, that God's original words given to his original listeners, his original authors, was divine and it was without error. The text that we have in front of us today, it is in English. Maybe there's one of you in the room, maybe there's one of you watching online that you don't have an English Bible in front of you, but we all have English Bibles in front of us. This is not the original text, but God's word is divinely inspired. The text we have in front of us is a wonderful gift. A wonderful gift to our generation allows us to learn from God's word in precise and practical ways. We are currently sending missionaries around the world that are are translating Bibles into uh, the tongue of the, the, the natural tongue so people will be able to speak through and understand God's word for themselves. One of the biggest changes in the Catholic churches over this last hundred years was that they moved away from the Latin Vulgate so that they would be able to understand what it was that they were hearing from the priest in their church. The Old Testament text was in Hebrew. The New Testament text was in Greek. And anything that we are looking at all these years later is a copy of a copy of a copy translated into words that we can now understand. I'm going down this rabbit trail because I remember being in a class when I was working on my master's and hearing the professor talk about how we came to have this book in our hands. And it was to my shock to find out that there were no quote-unquote original documents in a safe somewhere, in a vault somewhere that would say, well, this is, a, this is what Luke actually wrote on. Let's go take a look at it. They're not there. It's been copied over again and again and again. The originals are long gone, but what you do need to know is that we have some really, really old texts. And when they are discovered, they are always and have always been consistent and accurate with the other ancient texts as well. Truth is timeless. God's word will never change. His promises are true. His love is consistent and his salvation is real. And we know this not because we have the original text here to prove it, but instead because of how our lives are changed. So God's word never changes. The Bible will change you. That's how you know it's real. That's how you know it's authentic. That's how you know it's true. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You will be able to test and approve what God's will is. That will that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You'll be able to discern it. You'll be able to understand it. You'll be able to under, uh, approve it. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. You will be transformed to be able to understand that through the reading of God's word. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and you admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. 
Let the message, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The Bible can change your life, friends. But you have to read it. You have to read it. Going back to Abraham Lincoln, he said this about the Bible. In regards to this great book, I have but to say it is the best gift God has given to man. All the good Savior gave to the world was communicated through this book. But for it we could not know right from wrong. All things most desirable for man's welfare here and hereafter are to be found portrayed in it. So let's go back. Let's go back to our primary text here in Luke chapter 1. So, so if you'll remember, when the angel come and he, he spoke to Zechariah, Zechariah was in the middle of leading a worship service. Luke told us that he was chosen to be the one to go inside the temple and burn incense before the Lord. And the people, they were praying outside. And it wasn't until this week, going back and looking at it, I was reminded that he had to, to draw straws. He got the short end of the stick to have to go into and lead this worship service. So he better be prayed up. He better know what's going on. There better not be any sin in his life because priests, when they would go into the temple, they would have in their garments, they would have bells that were sewn around the hem of their garments so they could be heard while they were moving around. All those people who were praying on the outside, they were praying that their priest is not going to be knocked flat on his face there in the temple. Jewish tradition tells us that the priest would even oftentimes have a rope tied around his ankle. I don't know if that was for all priests or just for a couple of them that you were suspect about. I don't know. We better put a rope around that guy. And God would strike them down for having an impure heart in his holy presence. If those bells ever stopped jingling, just grab the rope and drag him back out. I wouldn't be going in there after him, would you? So the people are waiting for Zechariah to come out. They are waiting for him to come back and give the benediction prayer, one that we pray here often on our way out from Numbers chapter 6 that Aaron would say to the people as well, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. That's what they were waiting for. But when Zechariah comes out, what does he say? He can't say anything. He's been struck, mute. So he has to wait nine months to give the blessing. So when he speaks, it's not number six, but it's an inspired word from the Holy Spirit, a fresh word of blessing from the Lord. It's a beautiful song, a beautiful musical opening, a grand entrance to his <coughs> gospel narrative. Verse 76. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. As the band comes forward this morning, let me restate that last line. The rising sun that is going to come to us from heaven, Zechariah is saying. And that sun is going to shine on those living in darkness, those who are living in the shadow of death, and guide our feet into the path of peace. 
Isn't that beautiful? See, God's word will never change. The Bible will change you. Zechariah has been changed here, and he wants to speak to the greatness, the beauty of God. Something has been illuminated in front of him. He knows the path that he is going to walk. He knows the path that his son John is going to walk. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus would say this. Again, Jesus spoke and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have light. Zachariah's son, John, would be the forerunner of this light. Friends, the Bible is alive. The Bible is alive. The stories, they are true. God's word will never change, but the Bible will change you. With every head bowed, every eye closed this morning. Friends, the Bible points us to Jesus. Do you want Jesus to change your life today? Many of you may be coming in this morning with a a hole inside of you. You've been trying to fill with all types of different things. But if we are to believe Scripture, if we are to believe the Bible, if we are to believe that it's as true as it says that it is, that it is the Word of God, then the Word of God says that you will never be able to fill that void without a relationship with Jesus Christ. The light of the world has come to save. So this morning, if you want to turn your life over to Him, would you pray this with me? Dear Lord, The Bible says I'm a sinner. I believe it. The Bible says that I cannot save myself. I believe it. The Bible says that you sent your only begotten son as a gift. I receive it. Lord, please come into my heart today. I want to be changed. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. If you look up, this morning we're going to sing some music. We're going to raise our voices to sing about the greatness and the power and the beauty of Jesus Christ. But I hope this morning that you know and you understand and you realize that we only have that because God's word has been made available to us. He has made it tangible, has made it accessible so that we can know who he is. Don't leave this morning without knowing that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ.